0: Even though it's springtime and the flowers are starting to bloom and the birds are singing, I still feel like yearning for a cozier, spookier time of year. This Halloween-type yearning not only infiltrates what I want to watch and what I want to read, but it also affects what kind of art I am enjoying. In particular, I've been curious about the myriad ways that we can portray death in visual art. Because death has always been a part of art history. So much of the great art that we know and love today works in the capacity to stave off one of the terrible side effects of death, being forgotten. Portraits, stone monuments, ancient coins, they all aim to ensure that the subject depicted will be remembered and revered for all eternity. There's funerary sculpture and death masks that tackle death directly as their bread and butter. And then there are artists whose concepts and philosophies of death were brought into the modern era with people like Ana Mendieta, Felix Gonzalez-Torres, Damien Hurst, and Andreas Serrano getting in our faces about the fact that we are all going to die someday. But one artist really takes the cake in terms of focusing on the everyday tragedy of death as a subject in a very revealing and even exploitative extent. Many people might jump to say, oh, Andy Warhol, and indeed, Warhol loved to glamorize death in his works, from replicating tabloid images of car crashes and aviation accidents to these truly chilling portraits of electric chairs. But was he the first to really make death his calling card? Nope. That honor belongs instead to an immigrant photographer working in Manhattan in the 1930s and 1940s. Some people think that visual art is dry, Boring. Lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings and photographs are weirder, crazier, or more fun than you can imagine. Today as we continue to work hard on our upcoming fifth season, we are revisiting and tweaking some of our favorite early episodes. This one is a deep dive into the story of Ouija, one of the subjects of our fifth episode. This is the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. Ouija, of course, wasn't the actual name of the artist we're discussing today. But we'll get to that nickname shortly. The man who would eventually become Ouija was born Asher or Usher Felig, though he eventually went by the Americanized name of Arthur Felig. Felig was born on June 12, 1899 near Lemberg, Austrian Galicia, now modern-day zolachiv in Ukraine. When he was 10 years old, Felig immigrated with his mother and siblings to New York City following in the footsteps of his father who had come to the country three years prior to establish roots. This was at the dawn of the 20th century when immigrants from Eastern Europe, and elsewhere of course, were not really welcomed with open arms. But Arthur Felick did not let his outsider status affect him, and indeed, he worked extra hard to overcome it, dropping out of school in his early teens to work odd jobs to support his family so that they could live as secure a life in America as possible. Somehow. Serendipitously, one of his first jobs was working as a street photographer, taking pictures of children riding a pony. He would then sell the photographs to the children's proud parents at a markup of 50 cents for three photographs. As Fellig later told his friend, fellow photographer Ralph Steiner, quote, it was a good racket, but the pony ate too much. He fell in love with the camera almost immediately and was hired quickly to act as an assistant to a commercial photographer in the early 1920s. During that decade, he did almost everything that could be done with photography. Developing, printing, editing, selling, and creating. His biggest coup came in 1924 when he took a job as a darkroom technician at Acme News Pictures, which later became United Press International Photos. He juggled this and several other low-paying jobs, which gave him just enough free time so that if he limited the amount of sleep he got each night, he could have the chance to go out into the darkened city and shoot his own images. Felix’s nocturnal ramblings around New York City with his camera morphed him quickly into a rather strange fellow. But instead of letting his curious personality become a liability, he embraced it and crafted and cultivated a very specific persona meant to garner attention. By the time he was in his early 1930s, he was overweight, brash, with uncombed hair, and never without his favorite vice, a cigar, of which he would usually smoke up to 20 per night according to some reports. He was instantly recognizable, and word of his photographic talents got around, quickly. As his career progressed, he would eventually make enough money to keep himself comfortable, particularly since he married only in the last years of his life and did not have any children of his own and because he mainly lived for his work. He sold his photographs to many of the top newspapers, magazines, and tabloids of the day, and he was paid handsomely for it, sometimes receiving $5 per picture, which was a pretty penny for an image back in the 1930s and 40s. He was published by the New York Post, the Daily News, the Herald Tribune, the World Telegram, and beyond. But he was always very careful to not let on whether or not he was financially stable. Probably this was his attempt to stay identifiable with the everyman, as he most often covered the events or causes which happened to the lower classes instead of those of the elite, like other celebrity-obsessed tabloid photographers roaming New York at the time. And to me, that's one of the beauties of Ouija's works. His images are really democratic, crossing class and race lines with no particular social or political affiliation, though most of his works are pretty closely tied to the working class so it makes sense that he'd make himself look a little shabbier. And he really took this to a whole new level. To seem more like a member of the working class, for example, Felig would later take all of his suits to a tailor who would add at least two inches of fabric to the entirety of the outfit. This made it appear, according to the editor and columnist, Aline Talmy, as if he had been bought off of a pushcart on New York City's Orchard Street, unquote. He lovingly called himself The Gentleman Bum. In the 1920s, Arthur Felig was working by day at Acme News Pictures and carefully crafting his photographic style in his off hours. In those photographs, he searched actively for his own version of America, his take on the Americans who surrounded him every day. And what would become the everyday of Felig was darkness. Literally. We're talking most specifically about night the time of day when Fellig would perform his photographic walkabouts. Though he didn't exclusively shoot in the evening, it was really these photographs that we think of when we think of Ouija. Shadowy alleyways, darkened movie theaters, shuttered storefronts and crowded streets, with their inhabitants all starkly illuminated by his flashbulb, which provided what he dramatically called, quote, Rembrandt lighting, unquote. He began to hone his style, manufacturing spontaneous black-and-white images that focused many times not only on the literal darkness of the environment, but on the metaphorical darkness of urban life. He could frequently be found at the scene of a terrible fire, a murder, a car accident. And these images that he created there are seemingly equal parts exploitative and detached. His photographs could capture the aftermath of a grisly death destined for the tabloids of the day, but they were also just documents of the event itself, too. And much of the time, the scene of the crime or the burning building wouldn't be as interesting as his exact subject matter, because instead, he focused primarily and predominantly on the human element. As Ralph Steiner wrote, quote, early in his career, he discovered that most corpses and fires look pretty much like one another. Now he looks first for the human element, for anything incongruous, for little points that may be more interesting or revealing than the main event, unquote. So, Felig turns his lens towards a policeman carrying out newborn kittens from that burning building, for example, or to a scene of onlookers rubbernecking a crime. These scenes can be humanizing, but then others are very film noir. Policemen peering over crime scenes in their fedoras, pavements darkened by spilled blood, and even images such as one of my favorites, of a stone-faced, fur-wearing woman whom the photographer would identify in his capital letter scrawl in the margins as, quote, the murderous," unquote. It wasn't all tragedy and debauchery with Arthur Fellick, though. Some of his most engaging images are of children cooling off in the spray of a fire hydrant on a hot summer day, or of couples kissing in the midst of a crowded movie theater. He photographed people laughing at a bar, dancing in Harlem, and leaving the opera. But it is his images of the grittier realities of the city at night that still transfix us as viewers. And the man that would soon style himself as Ouija, felt more at home in these places. He once said, quote, "'Sometimes a night goes by with no murder "'and it don't seem right to me. "'I think something's wrong.'" Unquote. Fellig recognized that he had a really good thing going. He had a style that was eye-catching and his works were in high demand. So in 1936, he left his various odd jobs in favor of something entirely different, to become a freelance photographer. And that changed everything. About his newly independent mode of working, Weegee said, quote, In my particular case, I didn't wait till somebody gave me a job or something. I went and created a job for myself, freelance photographer. And what I did, anybody else can do. What I did simply was this. I went down to Manhattan police headquarters and for two years I worked without a police card or any kind of credentials. When a story came over a police teletype, I would go to it. The idea was, I sold the pictures to the newspapers, and naturally, I picked a story that meant something. Unquote. Fellig's involvement with the police teletype was integral to his work, and integral to his nickname and branding. At the beginning, he did spend a lot of time simply skulking around police headquarters, waiting for a tip-off about the latest crime scene. But eventually, he was granted access to his very own police teletype machine, which was a kind of electric typewriter that would transmit messages from point to point almost like a precursor to a fax machine. And Arthur Fellig was actually one of the very first civilians in history to have his own teletype. And in true Ouija style, he really took it to the next level in its use. He set up house in an apartment across the street from police headquarters in Manhattan and installed his teletype by his bedside. He left it on all day and night and would jump into action anytime a noteworthy event came to his attention. It was said that somehow he even seemed to wake up from a dead sleep to get the best scoop. Almost as if he knew a crime was being committed before the police even knew about it. Later, when he bought his own car, he installed his own police radio therein so that he could drive around all hours of the night and arrive at any crime scene or happening far earlier than his competitors from any tabloid or newspaper. And it is by this seemingly supernatural ability to arrive almost right after a crime had been committed that Ouija received his nickname, a phonetic spelling of the popular fortune-telling Ouija board game. But instead of O-U-I-J-A, Ouija spelled his moniker W-E-E-G-E-E, Ouija, to which he would later add the superlative The Famous. Ouija the Famous, he called himself in both an ironic and clearly non-ironic fashion. And thus, the branding of Arthur Felig was complete. If there is one single thing that made Ouija really stand out, it is this. Murder. He once very famously quipped, murder is my business. And indeed, he really made it his most profitable line of work, capturing not only the aftermath of a deadly confrontation, but also its grittiest details. A crumpled car destroyed by a terrible crash a bloodied corpse haphazardly lying on a sidewalk, perpetrators being taken away in shackles. With such in-your-face images, Ouija is meant to grab your attention immediately. And even today, over 75 years later, his images still mesmerize. Certainly, this was a major selling point to New York's many tabloids, who paid top dollar for the grisliest of Ouija's works. The old news adage about television, if it bleeds, it leads, was something that Ouija could set his bank account by long before there was even televised news. And if you'll pardon my terrible pun, he really made a killing at it. A good example of Ouija's photos is a piece simply titled Murder Victim circa 1940. Lit by Ouija's stark flashbulb, it's a quick glimpse of a policeman's lower body, a mangled, open-shirted corpse, and a distressing baby carriage parked in the background. It's a moment captured. There's nothing posed about it. One can really just visualize Ouija bursting forward past any police lines to grab the quickest snap possible. And that very sensation of quickness just brings home the veracity of these images. This was real life. This was a crime scene, and this person really lived and died. And Ouija was there, in our place, to act as witness and to capture the moment for generations to come. This is one of Ouija's images where a murder victim is not identified to us. For many of the crimes which he documented, he was able to garner information from the police and from passers-by. Who were the victims and perpetrators? What really happened here? And in some cases, he was almost more excited and starstruck when the individuals were connected to something especially seedy, like organized crime or prostitution rings. And indeed, Ouija's identification of, and near celebration of, those who would dwell in the pseudo-underworlds, would prefigure the cult of celebrity which would eventually become hugely important to Ouija as well as many others to come after him. As horrifying and grotesque as these blatant murder images are, to me, there's almost nothing more awful than one of Ouija's most famous photographs. It's a picture titled Their First Murder. This particular photo doesn't actually even show a murder at all. Instead, we see a group of children, probably aged somewhere between eight and nine and upwards of 15 or 16 years old, as well as two women who are all reacting wildly to witnessing a murder. In Ouija's first book, published in 1945, entitled Naked City, he did pair this image with one on the following page of the corpse lying in the street, but it is really their first murder that strikes our attention. It's hard to look away from the faces here. In his book, Ouija wrote a one-liner to describe the scene as he remembered it. Quote, A woman relative cried, but the neighborhood dead-end kids enjoyed the show when a small-time racketeer was shot and killed. Unquote. A couple of the children in this photo are outright laughing at what they've seen. A small group in the middle consists of a brunette girl straining with manic wild eyes to get a better look, while another child's hand pulls at her from behind, perhaps tugging at her hair, either to get her away to safety or to vie for a better viewing position himself. And it's probably the latter. A blind boy at the far left mugs for the camera, smiling hugely, because this is his moment to be memorialized. Others just outright stare. The kids remind me that their response and reactions are not yet molded by behavioral expectations, nor are they mature enough, possibly, to understand fully what they've just seen. The two women, though, are in direct contrast to the children. They act appropriately for witnessing the end of life. Anguish, downturned eyes, tears. And that's what I find to be one of the most interesting and unique elements of Ouija's work. Ouija himself photographed in a dispassionate way, but the people he photographed are so emotive and so expressive that I find myself standing not in the photographer's shoes, but in the subject's shoes. Ouija doesn't act as a substitute for us as viewers, like many photographers do. Instead, he mirrors our own emotions and tendencies back to us. And for me, the responses captured by Ouija and what they might mean for us as viewers are what makes his photographs so disturbing. Coming up next, it's the legacy of Ouija, how he got his big art world breaks, defected to Hollywood, and inspired Joe Pesci and Jake Gyllenhaal. Stay with us. In this new year, I'm taking advantage of care of to make health and wellness a top priority for me. Care Of is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door, and they make it so easy to get what you need, whether you're focused on glowing skin, boosting your energy levels, getting more sleep, or just generally being more healthy. It can be really hard to know what vitamins or supplements you should be taking, but Care Of makes it easy to find out what you specifically need to be your healthiest, and they do this through a really fun online quiz. So I really loved doing this quiz, and it took me less than five minutes and asked me questions about my diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices. And then less than five minutes later, I got my recommendations for a specialized mix of vitamin supplements to tackle my wellness preferences. So I want to both manage stress and get more energy. And so Care Of told me exactly what supplements and vitamins I needed. And with Care Of, you not only get to do something good for yourself, but you can also do good for others because a portion of every sale goes towards the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers in need with valuable prenatal vitamins. Right now, you can take advantage of this month's special New Year offer. So for 50% off your first month of personalized Care-of vitamins, go to TakeCareOf.com and enter the code ARTCURIOUS50. That's TakeCareOf.com and enter promo code ARTCURIOUS50, all one term, for 50% off your first month of specialized, personalized vitamins. This episode is also brought to you by CuriosityStream, a subscription streaming service that supports our lifelong quest to learn, explore, and understand our world. Founded by John Hendricks, the founder of the Discovery Channel, CuriosityStream offers over 2,000 documentaries across many interest areas, from science to history to travel and food. And there are also non-fiction titles from some of the world's best filmmakers, including exclusive originals. I myself am excited to jump into Around the World in 80 Treasures, which features host Dan Kirkshake's adventures through 34 different countries to explore some of the world's most amazing creations. For unlimited access starting at just $2.99 a month, go to curiositystream.com slash artcurious and enter the promo code artcurious when prompted during the sign-up process and your membership will be completely free for the first 30 days remember this is a completely free 30-day membership at curiositystream.com artcurious and enter the promo code artcurious the world's best designers know that the secret to creating an unforgettable space is sora lighting Sora Radiant LED is uniquely designed with full-spectrum technology so that you can see each and every color as nature truly intended it. So if you've ever walked into a great museum and wished that your home could look as vibrant, the answer could be in changing your light. Art curators and designers in the world's best museums know that Sora Radiant LED shows art with the full range of color and makes it look its very best because most LED bulbs have color gaps and they leave your space looking washed out and artificial. And for someone like me who really likes to have everything look beautiful in her home and in her work life, Sora is really ideal for me. I love how it really changes and affects the way I see my surroundings. And plus, it really helps that the bulbs are dimmable so that I can control my lighting and make my house feel exactly how I want it to feel. Sora Radiant is the only LED designed with full-spectrum color technology to eliminate those color gaps, and it makes colors and skin tones look vibrant and real, the same as if you were in natural sunlight. Radiant doesn't buzz when you dim it and it won't leave you with headaches. And they are all energy efficient, using just a fraction of the energy of incandescent bulbs, and it will last 10 times as long. So change your light and make your space look its best and most natural with Sora Radiant. For 15% off any purchase over $50, visit Amazon.com slash Sora. That's Amazon.com slash S-O-R-A-A and enter promo code ARTCURIOUS at checkout. Life can get really crazy sometimes. Between my busy young family, a full-time museum job, this podcast, and a few little fun side projects, and oh yeah, having a life, it's like I sometimes need to remind myself to take a breath. Modern life isn't simple, but a modern home can be. That's why I am so excited about All Modern. All Modern is an online-only destination for everything modern, everything from mid-century to Scandinavian to minimalist. But they are priced for real life, not for designers or for those with deep pockets. It's seriously simple, too. You can shop from home or on the go, find that sofa you saw on Instagram but for way less, and get it fast. All furniture ships for free, and most in just two days, not six to eight weeks like all those other stores. And All Modern even offers in-room delivery and assembly. I've been living with the same sofa for almost 20 years now and I am way overdue for a fresh upgrade. So I've been using All Modern to keep my eyes on some pretty luxurious tufted sofas that will look so chic in my house. And best of all, their prices don't make me want to cry. New, beautiful furniture is in my reach, and it can be in yours, too. So go to allmodern.com artcurious and use the promo code artcurious for 10% off your first purchase. Again, that's allmodern.com artcurious, then use promo code artcurious. All modern. The style you love, the prices you want, when you want it. It's that simple. Welcome back to Art Curious. Ouija focused his lens on the violent tragedies of everyday life, particularly the everyday lives of working and lower-class citizens of post-Depression New York. And, somewhat dispassionately, he sensationalized it, capitalized it, and elevated it. You see, Ouija was not only popular in the truest sense, meaning that his tabloid fodder images were sought after by the same working folk he photographed, but they were also praised by the fine art community, too, for his dramatic style and technique and this popularity on both fronts occurred during his lifetime, not after the fact, which, if you think about it, is not the norm for most artists. In 1941, New York City's Photo League held the first exhibition of Ouija's work, and shortly after that, in 1943, MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, began collecting his images and showing them in a museum for the very first time. As one can imagine, Ouija was thrilled with the fact that he was beginning to be shown and collected by esteemed institutions throughout the city and he took his own involvement in these shows seriously. For the Photo League exhibition, he even designed these infamous wall displays with splashy, sensational text and went so far as to drop red paint down the side of his installations to remind viewers of spilled blood. But these exhibitions had an extra element to them as well. They served as a celebration and praise of Ouija himself. Remember, Ouija called himself Ouija the Famous, and it's also true that a significant portion of Ouija's artistic output were self-portraits. He was his own best subject, his favorite subject really, and he knew that he was doing something new, different, and original. He was firmly part of the scene in which he was photographing, and indeed, he felt that a crime, especially a murder, just wasn't complete until he documented it. As he once wrote, quote, No bumping off was official until I arrived to take the last photo and I tried to make their last photo a real work of art." Unquote. Ouija the famous was the key, he thought, to it all. One of the nice things about using yourself as a subject is the immediacy and ease involved. Wow, you have somebody here to photograph whenever you'd like to photograph him or her. You can just do it. And this sense of immediacy also lends itself to spontaneity and experimentation. So it shouldn't be a surprise to know that Ouija used his own images to try out his newest and latest techniques. One of his innovations in the early 1940s was what he would eventually call his elastic lens, which was actually a combination of a bendable lens and a variety of filters, mirrors, and even kaleidoscopes that he used to distort his images. Figures or individual parts of such figures were then duplicated, made to disappear, elongated, or truncated. It became an obsession for Ouija, and became an even bigger part of his oeuvre after he decided that he had had enough of the darkness of Manhattan. He was over its murders, its gangsters, and those grimy, gritty, flashlit nights. And instead he opted to move to the bright lights and big stars of Hollywood. For just over 4 years, from late 1947 to early 1952, Ouija mingled with actors, singers, politicians, and writers, taking their pictures on lieu of those of bank robbers, crash victims, and detached onlookers. But this new phase of his career wasn't about taking images of all those pretty people. In fact, it looks like it was just about the opposite. It was about using those elastic lenses on them as he had done to himself, and to create these bizarro portraits of everyone from Clark Gable and Ed Sullivan to later Jackie Kennedy and Johnny Carson. As he described it, quote, I had to have a lens out of this world to do justice to the strange sights and people which are Hollywood, unquote. His most iconic became a series of images he completed of Marilyn Monroe in the early 1950s. She, who was at the height of her powers and popularity, and was seen as this voluptuous ideal of American beauty. But instead of celebrating that beauty, Ouija purposefully hides it, transforming an image of Marilyn with her eyes closed and puckered lips, warping it so that her mouth is squeezed small and slightly off-center, and her nose is transformed into a pig-like snout. In another version, her nose is squeezed into this tiny line, her eyes pulled sharply together, Marilyn Monroe via a funhouse mirror. All of these images are comedic, and for me, my first instinct is to laugh at them. But then I quickly find myself grimacing, because these distortions are harsh. There is a darkness there, an interest more in finding and focusing on the ugly than in the beauty that surrounds us. Because beauty really isn't something that Ouija found interesting at all. In an interview, he once dismissed it entirely, stating, quote, Everyone likes beauty, but there's ugliness. Don't forget, it's human. Unquote. That ugliness of humanity is the one thing that pervades all of Ouija's works from beginning to end. Even when he wasn't distorting a celebrity's image, he would focus instead on an unattractive facial expression or a harsh angle, or even the lesser enticing hangers-on in a celebrity's orbit. It's playful and satirical, a little bit rude and totally irreverent. But when so many others, like Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, Alfred Stieglitz, were systematically teasing out the beauty in every curve, line, and shadow, what makes Ouija so memorable is that he specifically ran the other way. His Hollywood works aren't as popular or as praised as his New York murder pictures, but they are still a really important part of who Ouija was. He was all about the hustle, about highlighting what you'd rather have hidden, about all that ugliness and that darkness. In Hollywood, he went about the same themes that he had pursued in New York, but just did it from a different angle. Hollywood, though, wasn't meant for Ouija forever. In 1952, he moved back to New York City, and it was there that he spent the majority of his remaining years. The funny thing is that even though Ouija left Hollywood, Hollywood never ended up leaving Ouija, and his years he spent there affected what he would end up doing for the rest of his life. Returning to New York, he felt that he couldn't be that same dead-eyed street photographer that he was 10 years prior. He had changed and experimented and was eager for yet another new challenge. He thought back to his time in Hollywood, and the metaphorical light bulb lit up. The movies... Though he was still working as a film photographer and even lectured frequently both in the U.S. and in Europe on photography theory and practice, his passion had really shifted to film. It wasn't too much of a stretch, though. And in fact, it appears that he had been experimenting with 16mm film as early as 1941. While he was in Los Angeles, the film bug really took hold. Not only for himself as a filmmaker, but also, apparently, as an actor. He was first cast in a role that makes an awful lot of sense. He portrayed a street photographer in the 1948 film Every Girl Should Be Married and followed it up with an uncredited role as a boxing ring timekeeper in the 1949 film The Setup. And in fact, all of his acting gigs, about seven in total, were uncredited except for one, an oddball 1966 pseudo-documentary-slash-sexploitation film starring Ouija as a version of himself as a photographer and woman chaser, the improbable Mr. Ouija, and was a so-called nudie-cutie film that was equally ridiculous and slapstick. It was Ouija's first and only starring role, and by all accounts, it's pretty terrible. But if there is only one major Hollywood gig that we can choose to remember Ouija's cinematic period by, then we have lucked out, because there happens to be a surprisingly worthwhile entry in his filmography. In 1964, he was billed as a technical consultant to one of the most famous directors in the history of film and in one of that director's most famous movies. He was a consultant for Stanley Kubrick in Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick, like so many others, was blown away by Weegee's New York Street photography. The grittiness, those harsh lights, that blinding whites, and those inky blacks. A film about the bombing of all humankind needed an aesthetic that was like a jolt. So who better than Ouija to inspire that dramatic aesthetic? But that wasn't all that Ouija ended up inspiring on set. Legend has it that actor Peter Sellers was so intrigued by Weegee's totally unique accent German by way of the lorry's Side, that Sellers imitated it in order to give his character his own unique way of speaking. Ouija died in New York City in 1968 at the age of 69, but his legacy has loomed far beyond, and he influenced many artists, especially other photographers who came after him. One look at Diane Arbus's beloved weirdos on the outskirts of society, the vacant stares of people loitering in public parks or street corners, and you can see Ouija's legacy. Robert Frank's iconic late 1950s series, The Americans, might not have been possible without Ouija street photography from two decades prior. And of course, let's not forget the mid-20th century's top provocateur who was equally fascinated with death and celebrity as Ouija was, Andy Warhol. I love the comparison between Warhol and Ouija so much that I actually discussed these two together in an earlier episode of the Art Curious podcast. That's episode 5 if you want to go back and listen. And you'll learn about how these two are much more similar than they might appear to be on the surface. Even today, a new generation of photographers is discovering his work for the first time and taking them to heart. And of course, it's not just his aesthetics that have made a lasting impression. It's also his oversized personality and his way of working. Peter Sellers would not be the last actor who was inspired to mimic Ouija on the big screen. Dario Argento's 1991 film, Two Evil Eyes, presents us with a character modeled after Ouija and played by Harvey Keitel. Keitel's character, by the way, is called Rod Usher, Usher being an almost blatant reference to Ouija's birth name, Asher Fellig. In the film, Usher is a crime scene photographer who proclaims, Still life is my art, which obviously mirrors Ouija's famous saying, Of murder is my business while punning, of course, on the art term of still life and the fact that a corpse is a literal representation of a still life. See what they did there? And then the next year, Joe Pesci's Leon Bernsey Bernstein, also a crime scene photographer, was modeled even more directly on Ouija, right down to that iconic stogie in the film The Public Eye. At one point, Bernstein gets into a crime scene so suddenly that the on-screen cops marvel that he must be using a Ouija board to divine crime locations. In 2014, Ouija once again inspired a Hollywood blockbuster in a film that updates his temperament and style to the 21st century's 24-hour news cycle. Instead of a crime scene photographer, Jake Gyllenhaal's Louis Bloom in Nightcrawler is a freelance shooter of documentary news footage who sociopathically takes his job to the extreme. And like Ouija, he tries to sell his images to the highest bidder. Ouija was nothing if not the most fundamental capitalist when it came to his work. He once claimed, quote, If I had a picture of two handcuffed criminals being booked, I would cut the picture in half and get five bucks for each." Unquote. Truly, you can see the ripples of Ouija's powerful work all throughout visual culture. And though Ouija once famously said that practically anyone can make photographs like he did, there could only ever be one Ouija the famous. Ouija, who called himself the greatest photographer in the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious Podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and social media help is by Emily Crockett. Our production and editorial services are provided by Kabunki Creative. Video, content ideas learn more at kab additional editing help by hannah roberts the art curious podcast is sponsored primarily by anchor light anchor light is an interdisciplinary creative space founded to foster artists designers and craftspeople at varying stages of their development home to studios residency opportunities and exhibition spaces anchor light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle For more information, please visit AnchorLightRaleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. For more information on how you can support the show, as well as see images, information, and links to all of our previous episodes, go to our website, ArtCuriousPodcast.com. You can contact us there, or also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ArtCuriousPod. And don't forget to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts 5 Stars, please. And tell anyone you want about the show. Check back in a few weeks when we will begin Season 5 of the Art Curious Podcast. Exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.